Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your good gifts today as we come to this particular time in our gathering to talk about the church. We are especially thankful for the gift of the church. With all of her blemishes, she is still vital for our lives. Help us to see that and to embrace that, to love the church, and to delight in what you've given us in her. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Where your heart is matters. The things you desire, the passions that you have, that is, I think, another way of saying ideas have consequences. Your heart has consequences. In fact, when your heart is somewhere, if you're not careful, it'll override your head. It'll make you do stupid things if your heart's in the wrong place. It'll cause you to be blind or to not see what you want, need to see because your desire for something supersedes that other information. In fact, I suspect that maybe 80% of what we do is driven primarily by the heart. It just bypasses the brain. We do all kinds of things because we want to. And the question is, where do those want-tos come from? How do we cultivate them? How do we develop the right things to want and avoid wanting the wrong things? How does that happen? As a pastor of 33 years, I've had the opportunity, of course, to observe many church members, many families, individuals over those years. There's a wide range of people when it comes to the understanding and commitment levels regarding the place of the church. And it always shows in what people become and what families become. The reason being that whatever we desire or love is what we become. And so I want to draw a distinction today between what we say we love and what we actually love. These two could be the same thing but not necessarily. You and I have certain habits, and those habits shape us and direct us. In fact, that is inescapable and inevitable. That's the function, by the way, of liturgy. And there are all kinds of liturgies. We think of the formal liturgy at church, but there are liturgies throughout the culture, all kinds of things that are inculcating desires into you, many times without you knowing it. The illustration I like to give is the child on the cereal aisle, the three-year-old, with mom pushing the cart, and lo and behold, right at eye level for a three-year-old, tricks are for kids. Colorful box, silly rabbit, toy inside, And before you know it, the three-year-old's already got the box, dropping it in the shopping cart. And if mom or dad says nothing, they'll be taking it home. If mom and dad are vigilant and they may decide, no, you don't need that sugary cereal, we're going to put that back and get something healthy for you, that's another story. But here's the question. 
Does a three-year-old know that General Mills is trying to sell him something, trying to inculcate desire in him to get him to do something without him thinking about it? Does he know? No. Does he need to know? Not from General Mills' standpoint. Does General Mills know? You bet. They're running ads on TV to promote it so that before they ever even get to the store, they're primed and ready. So as soon as they see that, they remember, this is something I want. Tricks are for kids. And I'm a kid. I've been told what I want. And, of course, it doesn't just happen with three-year-olds. It happens with us all the time. The whole world is built this way. The world is full of liturgies. Music, movies, the arts of all sorts are meant to drive us, meant to change us, and, as I like to say, everybody's trying to sell you something. It's a matter of whether or not what they're selling you is good, whether it's good for you. Now, if I ask all of you if you love Jesus, I'm pretty confident all of you would say yes. And uh, if... I followed that up by asking you, do you love the church? Perhaps most of you, perhaps all of you would say yes. But how would we know if your profession of love is indeed what you really love? Is your heart, your desire, it's your heart and your desire and your love that I want to address today. Allow me to give another example. You ask a man if he loves his wife and he is insistent that he loves her. He's even a bit insulted that you would even ask such a question. But upon observation, you discover that he stays away from home weeks at a time. He never helps with the family chores. He spends most of his paycheck on himself. And he doesn't communicate with her unless there's something he needs or wants. Now I ask you, having heard his profession of love and having observed his behavior, does this man love his wife? How do you know? The same kind of question and observation can be made about the church. The church is a family and we're part of that family. And there are any number of events and functions and meetings, for example, that take place in a church. This camp is an example. And there are good reasons for people, church members, not attending or participating in any given function. They might be sick. They may have to work. They may be out of town. They may have some genuine previous commitment. But I'm not as concerned about why some people are not, uh, some people not being at a church function as I am about why they don't want to be at a church function. Why might someone prefer the ball game or sleeping in? over worship and fellowship. Peter admonishes, 1 Peter 2, 2-3, as newborn babes desire, literally long for, the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If a baby doesn't love milk, there's something terribly wrong with that baby. The desire to follow Jesus, I think, can be likened to hunger. The person who loves God also will love what he loves. 
James K.A. Smith, in his new book, You Are What You Love, which I would commend to you, stimulated much of my thinking on this subject. He offers a number of thought-provoking insights into how we develop and maintain our loves. He points out that Paul's prayer for the Philippians emphasizes the place of love. Listen to this. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We're so used to reading those kind of things. It just kind of comes in one ear and out the other. But he begins with his desire to see your love grow, and then it's going to be seen in certain things. Part of that will be in your knowledge, your growing knowledge, and your growing discernment, your growing wisdom. Those are parts of love. Notice that our knowledge and discernment increase in the context of an abounding or growing love. And then Smith asked this question. What if, instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers. What if you are defined not by what you know, but by what you desire? What if the center and seat of the human person is found not in the heady regions of the intellect, but in the gut-level regions of the heart. Now, we don't like, much less desire or love, what we don't know. And so, for example, I have a bunch of little grandkids, and it is remarkable that you can put a piece of broccoli on a five-year-old's plate, uh, or a three-year-old's, and they've never had this, but they can immediately tell you they don't like it. (laughs) I don't like that. Or frequently the question will come up. I have 16 grandkids, so there's plenty of questions. What are we having for supper? And inevitably, if I give the list of three or four items we're having in there, somebody will say, I don't like that. (laughs) Well, have you ever had it? No. (laughs) That's not necessary. (laughs) I can look at it and tell, right? Um, Now, maybe that saves lives somewhere in the ancient past when you're not sure what that was they prepared and uh, you're being cautious, you let somebody else eat it first and see if they die. Um, I always wonder about things like sauerkraut. Who who was the first one who said, I think I'll have a bite of that? But but we don't like or desire things we don't know, and oftentimes as we grow older, for example, we come to love the very things that at first we said we didn't like. And so desire must be nurtured and developed. Thus our habits make a difference in what we come to love. And remember, what we love is what we become. We move toward what we love, right, what we desire, and we move away from the things that we don't desire. It's like developing a taste for certain foods, even to the point that we crave that food. Psalm 42, 1-2, As the deer pants for the water brooks, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now we are, we were made to love God, 
But people create many substitutes for God. The Bible calls them idols. Idols come in many forms. These substitute loves always leave us empty. Man's chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him, to love Him. That's enjoying Him. Whatever our ultimate love is, that's our God. And we all have an ultimate love. We'll always follow our ultimate love. And thus Jesus, when He calls us, He calls us to forsake all others and to follow Him. And when He does that, He is calling for us to love Him supremely. In following Him, we'll come to love what He loves. And we know that He loves the church because He gave Himself for her and He purchased her with His own blood. Greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. Central to loving our God, loving Christ, is loving the church, which is his body. That's more than a metaphor. We are the body of Christ himself. The church is not the Rotary Club. The church is not just a gathering of individuals who happen to like each other or even happen to agree on doctrine. We are an organic thing. We are the body of Christ. Each of us are part of the body. Ephesians 5.28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, we have an interest in all the parts of the body. Do you have a part of your body that you don't have any interest in? You don't really care whether you lose a foot? Or an ear? Oh, no big deal. I've got another ear. I take it you'd be rather upset if you lost an ear today. (laughs) Though it's cold enough that if somebody thumps your ears, you could lose one. So be careful. So Paul gives this exhortation also, which there are a lot of metaphors that are given in the Bible, but this is more than poetry. The idea of these metaphors is to teach us to think more deeply. And he gives us this exhortation which talks about how we clothe this body. Therefore, Colossians 3, 12-14, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, this is the church, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Imagine you put on all these clothes and think of a big belt that you put on that just kind of ties it all together. That's love. It holds it all together. This church. John Calvin referred to the human heart, though, as an idol factory. The world is full of liturgies that seek to replace love for God with counterfeits. Your career, even your wife, even your kids, your hobby, sports, money, power. The world is full of all kinds of idols, things that people are in pursuit of, right? That's their chief end, is to obtain those things. That's the thing that they think promises them happiness, fulfillment. Satisfaction. 
If we're going to overcome these rival loves, the church is the place, especially in worship, where the counter-reformation will take place. It is where God has given his word and sacrament. It is where the community of God's people are gathered. It is where shepherds are given to feed and guide and protect his people. It is where true love for God is nurtured and matured. It is where we are constantly, uh, where we are constantly uh, reset and refocused on our ultimate love. Learning to love God takes practice. 1 John 4, 20-21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must, of necessity, also love his brother. The church is the place where the challenges of real love are brought to bear on the true images of God. One of the problems with churches that are filled with artwork, statues, is that the images are not living. They're pretty easy to get along with. They're much easier to get along with than real people, because loving real people always requires real sacrifice, self-sacrifice, the thing we hate to sacrifice the most, ourselves. Being a genuine part of the community or communion that is the church is like being in a real marriage or family. It's demanding. It's easy for us, by the way, to love the world. It's kind of abstract. It's really hard for us to love our neighbor. They're right there. They're annoying. Real love in a fallen world is always at best inconvenient. Now there are degrees of both community and isolation. Remember we said communion of, a communion of love. That's what the church is supposed to be. By this will all men know you're my disciples. You have love for one another. How did this disparate group of people come together? I, I often think that as a pastor. I look at this congregation and I go, how did this motley crew get together? We're from all over the map, every age, every background, every income level, economics, race. It's God bringing together people like that to be one. That is the picture of the gospel, that communion. So, in terms of the degrees of both community and isolation, though, this is kind of a little parenthesis in my talk here. It's possible that we can be a member of a church and at the same time not truly love our church. Many like to treat the community as something they can step into or out of at will. Um, people do that also in a family, right? Thus, even when they're officially or technically in the community, they can usually be found hanging out at the edge to enable a quick retreat back into isolation if need be. A minimal involvement in the community that is still focused on self-interest, which is the opposite of love. A place where I can get in my little circle and still not have to interact with the big circle. 
Thus, you've seen here at the camp, one of the things we're trying to do, and thankfully you're joyfully complying, is not just hanging out with your best friend, but when you go home tomorrow, I hope you go home having made a bunch of new friends or deepened some old friendships or some casual friendships so that over the years those mature and develop so that some of the people sitting in this room with you, hopefully many of them, will be lifelong friends. And so we're having you mix up in different groups and make sure you've talked to different people and you're playing games and you're praying together and you're listening together and you're eating together and we're shuffling the deck all the time to incorporate you. To incorporate is to make you a body, a corpus. And so, sometimes... Even the community events for certain people are all about them. What's in it for me? I don't know if we're going to go. I don't really like that speaker. I don't really like fellowship meals. I don't really like camps. I don't really like this. I don't, I, you see the common word? For example, a child might be a part of a family, a community, yet still function outside the community by either demanding to be the center of attention or else by living an isolated life within the family. Where's Johnny? He's in his bedroom with the door closed, on the computer, playing a game. That's where he'll always be if he can be. That way he avoids chores, he avoids having to interact with people. He can be by himself even though he's still in the house. In the church, it's seen in the smorgasbord of picking and choosing Which things to participate in based on personal likes and dislikes? What's in it for me? Coming and going without any consideration of others, never really volunteering or helping unless cornered or coerced, pressured. Hey, will you help stay and clean up? Yeah, I guess so. We were going to leave early, but... Well, would you leave early every week? How about sticking around and helping? And how about not having to be asked to do that? Somehow it magically, it's just, sometimes I think you know, parents do their kids a disservice because they clean up after them. I realize we should do that occasionally, but what happens is those kids grow up and they're grown-ups who don't know how to clean up after themselves. And they think somehow it all magically gets cleaned up by itself. So what does that have to do with loving the church? Everything. It's in the details. It's in the little things. He who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. You say, oh, I'd lay down my life for my church friends. Well, then live for them. Don't just die for them. Live for them. That's sometimes harder. So I want to emphasize that when the Bible speaks of community, it is not speaking of pseudo-community but of real community, of real communion. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and become members of one another. This will require sacrifice and self-denial because love always does. Romans 12, 4-5, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We are connected to each other all the time, even when we're not in the same room. 
even when we're not at church, we're still the church. When you're at your house, you're still connected to me. And I'm still connected to you. And it matters whether your family is growing in grace or not, because it's going to impact my family. Which is better, a church full of strong, godly families or one that's got a bunch of dysfunctional families? Is that going to be a strong church? No. So it matters what you do at your house because you're still the church at your house. The church is the center. It's the outpost of the kingdom of God and your house is an outpost of the church. And when you walk out the door, you didn't stop being part of the church. You didn't stop being part of the body of Christ. Christ first loved you and then he incorporated you. He made you part of his body. You're united to Christ, the church. You're not just a spectator. The church does not exist for you. You exist for the church. You're important, but you're not all important. I like Pastor Hatting's reference to the idea to cut off your little finger. You know what? Your little finger is worthless without your body. The body can function without a little finger. It'll get along without you, but you won't get along without it. Christ loved the church. We're to love his body. We're, to, we, we're part of his body. And remember, again, love is about what? Sacrifice. Service. Now, loving our church, real flesh and blood people, people with names, is not a footnote in the Bible. And don't, don't try to excuse yourself with some idea that I'm a member of the invisible church. No, you're not. Well, you are, actually. But there's only one church, not two churches. There's not your church and then the invisible church. And I'm in the real church, the invisible church. This one's just, I don't know what this one is, but I can take it or leave it. No, you're either in the church or not. And there are both visible and invisible aspects to the church. But the visible ones are the hardest ones to deal with because you have to sit next to them. You have to clean up after them. You have to listen to them. You have to endure them. You have to serve them. Here, this has been mentioned already. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about our duties and responsibilities to love the people that Jesus has saved and that he put in the church. Every single person that's in your church, that's baptized, that is a follower of Jesus, was put there by him. And he was put there in your local church. And he knew you were there when he put them there. And you're part of them, and they're part of you. I mean, you ever been to a family reunion and kind of felt a little worried? Like, I came from this? That's my cousin? Yes, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? Well, churches are kind of that way. Chesterton said uh, being in a family is somewhat like dropping down a chimney at random and having to get along with people on the inside. And uh, churches are that way. We're a refugee camp. We're a, we're a big orphanage. Here, this is what's been mentioned by both, I think, Pastor Neal and Pastor Hatting, but I'm going to expand it just a little bit. Here is an incomplete and truncated sample of what Scripture says about my relationship to the other members of the body of Christ. And I'm going to run through this super fast, and again, it's abridged. I'm not giving the references. This is what the Bible says that you're to do regarding the other people in your church. 
Love one another, be kindly affectionate to one another. In honor, give preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Edify one another. Be like-minded toward one another. Receive one another. Greet one another. Have the same care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, teaching and admonishing one another, uh, exhort one another daily, consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works. Do not speak evil of one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous, love all things, have fervent love for one another, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. I'm tired. That makes me tired just listening to it. It's hard work. 1 John 4, 7-12 is a good summary of this. Beloved, let us, that would mean all of us, love one another. Let me rephrase it. Let me paraphrase it. Let us sacrifice for one another. Let us sacrifice ourselves for one another. What does it mean to sacrifice yourself? Your time, your money, your attention, your labor, and anything else that's yours gets given up for somebody else. Beloved, let us love one another for God is love. That's the reason. Pretty good reason. And everyone who loves God Excuse me, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It's the fruit of salvation. That's how we know you're a Christian. Jesus said, by this will all men know you're my disciples. In this is love. Excuse me, in this the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now, how to love our church. What does loving your church look like? Another way of asking this is, if you love God, then how will you love the church? For loving the church means obeying God toward the church. Got that? God, I love you. What do you want me to do? I want you to love my church. And here's how. Here's how he wants you and me to love our churches. So I want to give you some practical application here. These are in no particular order. But I'm going to kind of start start at the top and move out. Maybe start at the center and move out. Loving the leadership. Hebrews 13:17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. 
I was thinking about what Paul says about husbands loving their wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he who loves his pastor, elders, deacons, loves himself. Because he says, it will be profitable for you to do this. God gave the church leaders and overseers for you to follow. I have people in my church, young people like yourselves and older ones who have been there for years, who have never once come and asked to speak with their pastor or elders about anything. Major decisions in their lives, jobs, moves, marriage. It never occurs to them, apparently, to go and ask for counsel and help, advice. They have never, they never have a question or a comment or a compliment or a thank you, nothing. And if that's the case, I have to wonder if there are ever any prayers offered for the church leadership. Expressions of gratitude or offers of service would go a long way to encourage and strengthen your church leaders. This past Sunday... I had a young high school girl ask to speak with me after worship. She had a question about how to deal with an unbelieving friend. And we sat down for a few minutes, maybe ten minutes. And when we were finished talking, she said some simple but powerful and loving words. She said, thank you, Pastor, for answering my questions. That question and that thank you did more for me than you can imagine. And I would like to think that I did something for her as well. Listening and paying attention to lessons and sermons is part of what loving your church looks like. Sometimes church is boring because you're boring. It's my job, it's the pastor's job, for example, to work every single week to come up with something fresh and powerful and insightful and amazing. And let me tell you, it's hard. Sunday's over and we're already thinking about next Sunday. Sometimes we're thinking ten Sundays away. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? I don't know. I've got to read. I've got to think. I've got to pray. Sometimes that comes together starting on Monday morning and... Sometimes it's Saturday night, and on rare occasion it's Sunday morning. Not because we put it off, but we're human. And we know that. But you know, no matter how well we do it, if you're not prepared to listen with an eager heart, you know the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness of heart. Is that you? That's how you can love your church. Get your heart ready. There's nothing more discouraging, or at least it's one of, among the top, to look out to be preaching a sermon and either have people coming in late, getting up, go to the bathroom three times. It's amazing how many people have to go to the bathroom in an hour period of time. Just remarkable. Or to be cutting up. I'm talking about people your age. Talking to the person next to them or 
you're making the key point you're ready to make, and they're leaned over doing something else, doodling on their bulletin. At least act like you're listening. That helps. It's even better if you actually listen. There is a term um, that I like. It's called being ass-eared, referring to a jackass, who if you play classical music for a jackass, he'll actually turn his ears and act like he's listening to it. It's called pseudo-listening. And that's why we tell children, sit up straight, look forward, pay attention. Well, that, that's a good start, because if I say something, which I rarely do to somebody who had their eyes closed or who was looking the other direction, oh, I was listening, I just had my eyes closed. Well, that's good. I would rather you have your eyes open. <laughs> it's encouraging to me. Is that why a parent, when they're talking to a child and the child is looking over here, says, look at me, look at me. Now, can you look at somebody and not listen? Yes. But you're a lot more apt to listen if you're looking. So sometimes church is boring, again, because you haven't done what you're supposed to do to bring to worship, to be ready to come before God. Um, It gives us great joy to see you hungry and interested and growing in Christ. Uh, That's one of the encouraging things to me about this weekend, to see you doing that. We deal with shipwrecks on a regular basis, and we don't want you to be one of those shipwrecks. Please, please help us see your love for Christ and his church so that we can continue to labor with joy and not with grief. Second, loving the community. Keeping your membership vows, all of them. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do you want God to keep all his promises? He wants you to keep all of yours. Participating, even when you don't want to, especially when you don't want to. Yeah, but that's not my thing. Well, it's all right. doesn't have to be your thing. You don't have to like it, but you do have to do it. You might learn to like it. You might not. That's okay. There are going to be some things you really like that you do that other people are going to participate in because you like it. That's part of being a group. Yeah, one of the tests would be, what would the church be like if everybody participated the way you do? If everybody tithed the way you did? If everybody prayed the way you did? Everybody listened to a sermon the way you did? Everybody volunteered their labor the way you do? What kind of church would you have? That's the standard. I mean, judge not lest you be judged. The standard you use for others is going to be used on you. So how about tithing? We already said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Gary North once said, love the Lord your God with all your money, which would be a great test of whether you love him with all your heart, right? How about loyalty? You know, sometimes you'll hear people say things about members of your church, maybe out in the community. They might even be true things. 
There's still gossip. Are you loyal to your family? Do you defend them? Do you love them anyway? Do you not engage? Yeah, I know, they're that way. No, you don't do that with your family. Love covers a multitude of sins. Conflict resolution. Maintaining communion. That's one of the things you can do in the community. You upset with somebody? And one of the things I really appreciate about one of our elders, uh, David Alders, is he really emphasizes in in worship and, and all the rest of us have taken this up. When we come to do our prayer of confession, there's always an emphasis about our need to forgive others who've sinned against us. To make sure we're right with everybody else. And by the way, just a note, to maintain true communion, forgiveness isn't something like this. Yes, I, I'll forgive you. And then you walk away thinking, man, I hope I don't have to sit next to her anymore. Is that the way Jesus forgave you? Okay, I'll forgive you, but please don't annoy me anymore. Please don't come around anymore. And so Jesus then avoids us? No, he embraces us. That's hard. In fact, it's more than hard. It's supernatural. That's how you love your church. Service. Don't wait to be asked. Volunteer. And you don't have to always volunteer. About, sometimes you go and you ask, how can I help? That's a great, ask your deacons, ask your elders, ask somebody else. But usually, right, if you're at home, can you figure out something that needs to be done at your house? Fold the laundry, take out the trash. Well, church is the same way. There's something you can do. Second, uh, third, well, let me just say, uh, well, I'm going to move on to third. Loving individuals, not just the group, but individuals. Now we're getting a little harder. Hospitality. I know you may not have your own place right now, but I assume you have other ways of showing hospitality, or you probably can have friends over. And I know people who, who never have anybody over, families who never have anybody over. Well, our house is a mess. We'll clean it up. Well, I'm not very good at it. Well, then don't clean it up and have them over anyway. Let them know. Is it pride? Are you afraid they're going to find out you're not a good housekeeper? Just go ahead and let them find out and have them over and have a good time anyway. Just shove the junk to the side and put a card table up and have them over. Or sit on the porch or meet at the park or something. Stop making excuses. I'm not a very good cook. Like you are. Well, I got a solution for that one. Invite them over at six for dinner. Wait till eight. Boil a package of hot dogs and serve it to them. And they'll say, That is the best hot dog I've ever had. <laughs> and if you want a gourmet hot dog, you can boil it in beer. So, look. Looking outside your immediate circle of friends. It's easy again in the group to just find your buds. As soon as church is over, we're over in our corner doing our thing. It's okay to have that tight group and close friends. In fact, that's a good thing. Unless that's the only thing. I want to challenge you. I've challenged a number of people to do this. It's hard to follow through, I know, but I'm going to do it again. On Sunday, when you're at your church and you're getting near the end of the worship service, I want you to look out or imagine who's behind you if you're near the front. Don't turn around. 
you know, who's there and think, you know, I haven't spoken to Mrs. Jones in quite a while. And when service is over, before I go hang out with my good friends, which I want to do, I'm going to take five or ten minutes and I'm going to go talk to her and ask her how she's doing. And so you do. Church is over. You make your way over there. Hey, Mrs. Jones, how you been doing? Haven't talked to you in a while. And you have this little chit-chat. Seems like small talk. You didn't talk about any big theology or deep spiritual truths. You just checked on her and showed her that you cared and gave her some attention. You loved her. And when that little five-minute conversation's over and you scurry off to your friends, you know what Mrs. Jones is thinking? What a fine young man. What a fine young lady. I really like her. Next time you see her at church, next week, she makes sure to speak to you. You speak to her. You know what? You're going to need Mrs. Jones someday. I don't know when. I don't know how. But God put her in your church for you to learn from and for her to learn from you. But if you don't ever talk to each other, that won't happen. Now, you do that every week for a year. You will know everybody in your church, and they will know you, and you will have a community and a communion like you don't have now, perhaps, for yourself. You need every friend you can get. See, this is the, the daily little stuff that matters. P.J. O'Rourke said, uh, he's a political commentator and humorist, he said, everybody wants to save the world, nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. We've got to help with the dishes. We've got to do the daily little stuff, because the little stuff always becomes big stuff. Next, loving the lowly. Are you better than some people? You know the, the answer your mother taught you there, right? Which is, of course not. But you know the real answer, right? Which is, of course I am. Are you smarter than some people? You don't have to. You can. These are rhetorical. You don't have to respond. I saw somebody. Yes. Um, uh, are you better looking than some? Funnier than some? Have more artistic music ability than some? Of course. God made us diverse. He gave us different gifts. Are you a lot smarter than some? Are you a lot richer than some? Have more education? All kinds of things. Are you cooler than some other people? Maybe. You know what? The church is full of, I hate to tell you this, but as I look out, I'm, it's confirmed. The church is full of odd Eccentric, broken, and even creepy people. <laughs> loving the church means loving all the people in the church, even the ones that are not lovely. Maybe especially the ones that are not lovely. Get out of your comfort zone. That's part of self-sacrifice. Oh, I have such a hard time having a conversation with him. Yeah, well, I didn't say it'd be easy. Let's do it. Do it for 30 seconds. Practice. 
Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, here's what Paul says, a leader in the church, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. Romans 12:16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble or the lowly. Do not be wise in your own opinion. You have something to learn from everybody. The old people, the babies, the little kids. Do you take time to interact? A lot of you do. Interact with the little kids. Play with them. Talk with them. Some of you do really good at that, but not so good with the old people. Old people like to be played with, too. (laughs) We like attention, too. And then finally, let me see if this is finally. Nope, there's two more. Loving the saints. I'm broadening this out. Christians from other churches. Christians who hold different beliefs, who worship different than you do. You have something to learn from them, too. I don't always agree with the way they do everything. But a lot of times they do things I'm not doing. There's an old saying, I like their way of doing it better than my way of not doing it. I have a lot to learn from other believers. Sometimes they pray better. Sometimes they're better about charitable acts. Sometimes they're better about all kinds of things. And I need to get out of my little club and go be around some of them and not always be uh, trying to evaluate what's wrong with them and how about I start evaluating what I have to learn from them. Christians of other races. I wish our church... I wish we had more racial diversity here today. I can't snap my fingers and make that happen. I think in many ways our culture is making some progress in this regard. But it's a shame that some of the progress is being made outside the church where the church needs to be the one leading the way. We are from every tribe and tongue. That's what the gospel does. It reverses Babylon. That's what Pentecost is about. Every nation. We are all one in Christ. And so we should be reaching out where we can. Strike up conversations. Who do you identify as? You know, if you ask a group of people, who are you? Frequently say, well, I'm white or I'm Scottish or I'm black or I'm Italian. Or I'm... The first thing, words out of our mouth ought to be what? I'm a Christian. Oh, well, I am too. Hi, brother. Christians of other, in other countries, Christians in other times, past and present, and future. We're all part of that. I mean, 
the reason I say that is we need to think of ourselves as something way bigger than just us. That's part of loving the church. Finally, I'm going to end on an odd note, one that I normally wouldn't say, but I'm certainly going to try to explain. Loving yourself is part of how you love the church. You're part of the body of Christ, and it's important for you to be a healthy part of the body. When Jesus called you to follow him, here's where he started. I alluded to this yesterday. I might allude it. I think I'll allude to this again tomorrow in the sermon. Luke 14. I'm going to read the text, and we'll close with this. With one or two little comments here. Now, great multitudes went after Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock, mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We begin to follow Jesus, that is to love Jesus, when we forsake ourselves our relationships, and our things. And when we love Jesus and his body as our ultimate love, then he sends us back to love our things. It's okay to be grateful for your house and your car and your clothes, your iPhone, our gifts. God gave them. Hold them that way. Use them that way. And he sends you back also to your other relations, to your wife, your husband, your children, your family members, your friends. And now you have, now you're able to really love them. But he even sends us back to ourselves. And now we're to love ourselves in a new way. We used to love ourselves in this selfish way that was destructive, that ultimately would end in our death and hell. But now in Christ, with him directing us as to how we should live and be healthy, how to truly love ourselves in light of him, to be as we were meant to be, then we can be a gift of God to the church. We are to receive all these gifts with gratitude and to glorify him with all of them including ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for making us a part of your church. Help us to see and appreciate the value and profundity of that gift. 
Help us not to take it for granted or to treat it lightly, but to love the church, the body of Christ, to engage ourselves in her uh, labors day in and day out, to give of ourselves our money, our time, our passions, that we might build up your people, that we might glorify your name in the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.